restless reflection, endless wrestling with memories. This necklace that rests on my chest, the test of remembrance. Retrospective, the quest are the memories impressed and imprinted, tinted with guesses. A peppered record revised over time, a blind paradise, not a solid vault, but a mutating default. Wish I could preserve it with salt. All the memories that threaten to slip and fall, get them all escaping forevermore. Can't recall adorning's the door to mourning the sores of moving when you were two. We flew and blew. Coiled ringlets of youth have dissipated and faded And now my hair is braided, unafraid I stand up straight I'm where I'm supposed to be, devoted, see to grow and be free I wear my beads, 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 beads Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in the siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more will be explored together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla and Dr. Elizabeth Condefraser. Your hosts are Puerto Ricans, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. Dr. Nancy Bedford's daughter once asked her, how can I be a good mother if I'm not a theologian? On this episode, we sit down with Dr. Bedford and discuss motherhood and vocation and how she's raised uh, tres hijas nepanleras. So siéntase en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Doctora Bedford, welcome to the show. I uh, I gotta ask you, would you prefer we do this one in French, Italian, Portuguese? We, we got various languages with you that we can do it in. Uh, Spanglish is good. <laughs> Spanglish is good. Spanglish is good. Elizabeth, ¿qué tal? How you doing? I'm well, I'm well. Let me, before we even get started, I want, I want people to know because uh, too many people in our audience haven't been paying attention to the work that's happening in Latin America and even those influences here that speak back. So let me introduce you to the powerhouse that we have with us today. We're joined today by Dr. Nancy Bedford. She, is, she was born in Comodoro Rivadavia, Argentina in 1962. I always want to say Riviera. I don't know why I see that word and I just retranslate it. Uh, she has been the Georgia Harkness Professor of Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary since 2003. Previously, she taught, taught theology at Instituto Universitario ICEDET and Seminario Internacional Teológico Bautista, both in Buenos Aires. She's written, co-written, or, ed or edited 10 books and written over 90 book chapters and journal articles, which have appeared in five languages. Among her books are Who Was Jesus and What Does It Mean to Follow Him? She wrote a theological commentary on the book of Galatians. She also contributed to Teología Feminista a Tres Voces and uh, contributed to the forthcoming Nuestra Fe Introducción a la Teología Cristiana, which is Fortress Press' first book in the Spanish language, which is expected in September or in spring of 2023. Doctora Bedford, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. I also want to welcome those that are listening for the first time. If you're new to the show, welcome to a mixed space, a space where people live in or on the hyphen. We like to say, ni de aquí, ni de allá, not from here or from there. 
We're excited that you're joining us for now the third season of the Mestizo podcast where we're dealing with the topic of dynamics, those things that exist between us. Uh, let me also tell you that World Outspoken has more than just the podcast for you to listen to. If you're interested in going deeper on any of the topics that we cover, World Outspoken now has a learning center where you can take classes that address the kind of cultural changes that are happening in your church. You can check out learn.worldoutspoken.com to see some of the online classes that we have now. There's two more coming in the fall. I'll tell you that in the fall, we have one coming on preaching that I'm really excited about. So you can check out learn.worldoutspoken.com to see some of the courses that are available there. And I haven't said this in a while, so let me say it now. You know, it really helps our podcast when people are uh, submitting reviews of the show. So if you haven't already, uh, go subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to the show, and leave us a review. Tell us your story about how you've been listening and engaging. You can follow World Outspoken at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have a question or a doubt about our conversation today, don't forget that you can leave us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also submit those questions by using the form on the show notes if you prefer to type those out. All right. Doctora Bedford, I'm really interested in, in your name, Bedford. Uh, I've wondered about it for a long time, even in class. Last semester when I was with you, I wondered, how did uh, an Argent uh, a person from Argentina have the last name Bedford? Can you tell us the history of the name Bedford, where it comes from, your family history? Sure. The first thing to know is Argentina has a lot of names that are not castizos, not hispanos, not, not Spanish. Um, probably the majority of last names are not there are a lot of Italian last names, German, Irish, what have you. And in fact, Bedford in Argentina was not strange as a name because um, there were these trucks called Camiones Bedford. And so that was how we could always tell people how to spell the name and it was familiar. But your instinct is correct. Uh, in, in my particular case, the story is that ancestors came from England, from Great Britain in the 18th century to what is now the United States. And eventually when my dad was born, he was born in New Mexico, Belen, Nuevo Mexico. And uh, by that time, the, the family, which I don't know what all the history was, but potentially settler colonialists, they were uh, sharecroppers. They were quite poor. It was the time of the depression when he grew up. And so they went from place to place. Eventually he felt the call to ministry, uh, became a pastor at 15 and by his mid twenties was already in Costa Rica with my mom learning Spanish to go to Argentina where they spent 40 years planting churches and planting children. And so we were raised as Argentines born there and with nobody questioning that we were from there. Uh, went to public schools. And really I didn't have much contact with the United States save for learning English uh, until I went to college. At that time it was a dictatorship in Argentina. Um, it was dangerous. And so my parents thought it best to ship me to the States to go to undergrad. 
I want to talk a little bit about that piece when you when you come to college, you're, you're experiencing life in a different way. I, I've got two questions, actually. I didn't plan on this question, but I've been thinking now about this. You know, someone who has that, that kind of background where there might have been a kind of settler colonialist uh, influence on how uh, your family got to where they were. It's interesting that you end up being a theologian in the tradition of liberation. Is that a is that a kind of uh, rebellious move, or, or maybe it isn't? I don't know. Talk me through that piece. Well, there's it's the work of the Holy Spirit, I think, and of contextuality. And my parents, for whatever reason, were very much contextual theologians, incarnational, embodying what they understood of the gospel where they were. They were not trying uh, to import things from the United States to Argentina. I'm sure they did without meaning to, but it wasn't their purpose. So they were very low key about really transmitting anything culturally from the United States, save indirectly. They did teach us the language, but they did not insist on, for example, I didn't go to school in English uh, for high school, all those kinds of things, right? And so that incarnational emphasis was there. And the logical corollary of that, I think, was uh, what I call the theology and the genealogy of liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, I wasn't rebelling as much as deepening the influences I had received. And what had been their influences as far as... Um which is the sending church for you? Yeah, I, I grew up Argentine Baptist, uh, which is really quite different than the Baptists here in the United States in a lot of ways. Um, so they were influenced by the Baptists in New Mexico um, that were affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, but did not in any way really reflect what one imagines when one thinks of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, And so they left, see, very early in the early 50s, and they missed out on the changes uh, of the kind of growth of fundamentalism that came all the way through the 80s into the United States. They were on another trajectory. So I always find that people who take uh, theological education seriously tend to grow more open-minded and so it's necessary for these institutions who don't want them to be open-minded to purge a bunch of people every (laughs) yeah yeah so was was he in any way influenced by Rauschenbusch no that was another trajectory really um Mm -hmm. the the that was kind of more considered something of the northern baptist or the american baptist and also the social gospel he right. was influenced by the reading, uh, the close reading of, of the of the Gospels. And mm. so what we had growing up in this planting of churches was really a reproduction of some of the dynamics of the primitive church, where you have to be practical. You can't, you don't have these long patriarchal traditions. You have to work with whatever you have and you're reading the Bible in, in, in groups of neighbors. And if a woman is a talented at preaching, she preaches. You're not saying you can't do it because you're a woman because you don't have that many people. 
It, it's very similar to comunidades de base. It was the same dynamic, and that that was their methodology for beginning uh, planting churches, and that's what I grew up with. So I didn't grow up with that that sense of being repressed in any way by my faith. And in fact, because it was uh, the time of the military dictatorship, church interpreting texts, leading um, in ways that were similar to community organizing were not really that possible outside of very specific spaces such as these kinds of churches. Yeah. So ironically, I was being prepared to be a feminist theologian, to be a liberationist type of theologian by my very community. That's fascinating. By the way, I love, you, you know you're in a conversation with, with two theologas who have studied their history when Elizabeth just named drafts, you know, Rochenbach, and you immediately know American bath, you know, you can tease out those details quickly. I love that. Uh, look, we've talked about the kind of church background and formation, but then you get eventually sent to the U.S. to go to do your undergrad and you end up doing seminary and eventually you do your PhD studies in Germany. And you've talked uh, about some of the ways that your body is read in those spaces. Uh, you wrote a response to Dr. Willie Jennings' book, After Whiteness, that was published not too long ago. And uh, we've pulled out some of those uh, stories that you included in that response to have a conversation about them. I think that this could be really helpful to us as we try to understand uh, the dynamics that are at play for you as a theologian, who especially has ra raised three daughters here in the States as 1.5 generation. So if it's all right with you, I'm gonna read one of these and then we'll talk about it because I think it's going to be quite helpful to us. So here's what you say, you include this story in your response to Dr. Jennings' book. You said, my body, though coated as white, did not sit easily in the halls of my mostly white, mostly male seminary. I was too female, too Latin American, too obtrusive. I asked too many questions. I was, I was as was often told, as I was often told, too intense. I was, quote, that communist girl. I did not, quote, play the piano, which was the usual code phrase for women attending seminary in order to marry a preacher and get an MRS. I love that, that slight there. It's an important one. But you go on, as you tell your story, you go on to ask a set of questions that I think really grounds our conversation today. I'll read the questions and then I'll focus in on the last one because I think it's the, the really thrust of it. You say, what does the U.S. culture of whiteness mean for me as an Anglo descendant? A person who marks white in the box for race in the census form, even while I also mark Hispanic or Latina in the ethnicity category. How does the armor of the light skin I was born with colonize me, even as it protects me? What does it mean for a white body to contest assimilation into whiteness? What do I need to learn and what do I need to unlearn? What is the precise shape and pattern of the metanoia the Holy Spirit is able and willing to help me live out? As you think of that last part there, metanoia, as that part that you're pointing to, what are you imagining, Dora Bedford? Yeah, well, that's a complex question, of course. Uh, metanoia, meaning conversion, meaning being turned around by the spirit. I feel that um, our life is a constant being turned around, a constant learning. So when I was per first put into these spaces, which I would now recognize as white spaces, as spaces where not only white bodies were in the majority, but where the logic was the logic of whiteness, um, I had to unlearn or 
question how these spaces were functioning. And I believe that the work of the spirit is per, per, precisely to disarticulate some of what we consider to be common sense or what the culture considers to be common sense in order to bring in a new way of thinking, a new logic. And so um, that metanoia is that constant process of walking along the path of Jesus, prosiguiendo, proseguimiento, continuing along. In Spanish, seguimiento, following, proseguimiento, to follow further along. As John Sobrino puts it, this proceeding along the path of, of Jesus today, in this time, in this place, by the Spirit, um, is a process of continual conversion transformation. That's what makes it challenging, but also exciting. And so at first I was quite naive. I didn't know what was going on. I was in these spaces. I realized I was accepted at some level because of how I look and because of my English and my last name. But when I didn't play according to the script, and I didn't even know what the script was exactly, then it was too intense. It was a problem. Uh, but I couldn't assimilate into those patterns because I've learned the difference now even between white passing and white presenting, right? So I'm white presenting and sometimes I'm white passing, but not all that often. But then I'm a professor and so professors get to be a little bit weird and strange. So I'm in a space <laughs> where it's allowed to be a little bit eccentric. So all of these things are happening um, and, and, and one teases them out with the help of the community, with the help of conversation, with the help of students like you asking questions and with the help of the Holy Spirit. There's a really important piece here and that is um, there, are, there are different processes that have formed you. So you spoke about the communal process of the church that you were in, of the upbringing and so forth, and how formational that was. Then there's the other process of education, which teaches one to disarticulate things, which teaches one to reflect in particular ways and so forth. And the Holy Spirit works through both of them and through the different communities that these are a part of. What happens when one doesn't have both or either of those in a community of faith? And one is being formed instead by the common sense of the community which reflects more heavily um, the culture and in, into which one is born and the strong influences of colonialism into which one is born, what happens then? And how do we, because the Holy Spirit is always present. So is the Holy Spirit less able to work there? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit brings a miracle and a revelation? Is that possible? Or do we really need someone who is more educated uh, to make a difference there through the Holy Spirit? Talk about that a little bit. And I know how in a classroom, 
one can help persons through a pedagogy of confianza to come to a different space, to a reflection, etc. How would we do that in a community of faith? Yeah, those are really great questions, and I, I'm passionate about all of those aspects, as you might imagine, and as I know you are. So number one, I feel like in any community, there are always these slight spaces of hope, these rendijas through which the Holy Spirit is, is shedding light, these little slats of light coming through, and, and so there's usually somewhere to begin. That is one piece of it. Um, so I, if, 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 the, if any community is at all responsive to the good news of Jesus, there are going to be some spots or places or, or small cracks of, of light coming through, and that's where you start with. Secondly, uh, life is short, and there's only so much time. So I have learned you don't throw perlas a los cerdos. You don't throw your pearls to the swine. I would not spend my whole life uh, worrying about those who are not responsive because the fields are ripe and there are many other places in which we can work. So that's another piece. Um, a, a, another uh, element here is the teologado de todos los cristianos y todas las cristianas, the theological vocation of the community, not just of theologians who are professional theologians. And that is sim similar to the priesthood of all believers. And so as a, 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 a theological community, what can emerge from our common wisdom and our common conversation? Now, what is then the place of the theologian in such a community, the professional theologian or the academic theologian or the academically trained theologian? Well, there's a, there's a concept that Boaventura Gisosa Santos talks about, the rear guard intellectual, the rear guard intellectual, not the vanguard intellectual, but the rear guard intellectual. And I like this idea of being a rear guard theologian so that we are walking alongside and walking behind the community and bringing what we know for the good of the community, but not thinking that we are the visionaries that can tell the community exactly where it should go. So sometimes the places that there's light opening up and there's possibility opening up is not where we would want or hope, but it's another place. And so as a rear guard theologian walking along behind, not denying that we have something to bring because we do, but also not thinking we're the only ones who do theology, that has been um, helpful for me as a member of a community as well as, as a, a professor of theology. So I, I'm very churchy. I love the church in part because I grew up in these spaces that, as I said, replicated to some extent the primitive church experience so that there weren't these strong traditions of patriarchy imposed. Um, secondly, I, I'm in a tradition of counter-hegemonic communities or counter-cultural communities where the culture that is the mainstream culture is not necessarily seen as the most helpful. And yeah. so we have to figure out how to be counter-cultural and where to be counter-cultural. Sometimes churches focus on being counter-cultural in ways that are not so helpful. Right? So I want to ask about that piece because as you think about being counter-cultural, and I like this image that you use, right? There's always cracks where the sunlight can get in. Uh, you've had 
uh, an opportunity to see cracks in your own in your own kind of personal life with your daughters, right? To kind of shine a light on them. You include this story in in your in your written response that I want to read about how you've been countercultural with your daughters and how you might learn in community with them. Let me read the story here. You said, "My three daughters belong to the 1.5 generation, born in Argentina, raised mostly in the United States. When one of them was in the second grade or so, she came home from school one day looking upset." Te dijo, mami, sería más fácil ser blanca. Mami, would it be easier to be white? One part of me found the whole situation absurd. She was blue eyes and light skin. But as we talked, I began to understand what she meant. She told me that a lot of the English dominant kids and several of the teachers, even some of the Latinas, treated Latinx kids like her as if they were less intelligent, less capable. What she was telling me was that as a white passing person, it would be easiest simply to assimilate, to let her Latinaness be dissolved into the dominant white culture. We have discussed variants of this scenario countless times as a family. So here's, here's again another one of those opportunities where the light shines through in a question. So I wanted to ask you, you, you describe your daughters as nepantleras. Maybe for the sake of the listener who doesn't know that word, before, before you respond to the question, give us a quick snapshot of what nepantlera means, but what have you learned along with your daughters about what it means to, to navigate life as nepantleras? Yeah, oh, great question. Well, nepantla uh, is a term that Gloria Anzaldúa made popular, and she understood it as being torn between ways, as being on a borderline, or as you say in your podcast, life on the hyphen, right? Um, so being torn between two logics that grate upon each other, like a greater and, and, and hurt sometimes, uh, which is the border between the United States and Mexico, the border after 1848. Let's not forget that that wasn't always the border. And so these borderlands have always been more porous and more complicated than some readings of U.S. history suggest. So when the United States is so shocked at a power just taking over some land next door because it wants to and it can, it, it, it's surprising to me that nobody's thinking about 1846 through 1848, the, Spanish, the, the, the war against Mexico and the fact that the United States took over more than half of Mexico's territory. So that borderland, that physical borderland, Gloria Anzaldúa says, is, is, is a deeply unsettling, but also deeply creative and generative space. So in the same way, um, I, I thought, you know, really kind of naively, oh, okay, this, this applies to my children. They're nepantleras. They live in Nepantla. Okay. And I thought that was, you know, I have a category for it now, and, and, and it's, it's simple. As time has gone by, part of that pedagogy of, of motherhood that, that we were referring to earlier is in fact learning, you know, it's not quite that easy. You may have a name for it, but the process is continually difficult. It is not easy. Um, and so this uh, story that you read about um, is precisely one of the variations, this pressure, if you're white presenting, just assimilate and then you'll be considered intelligent and then you'll be considered you know the way you're supposed to be just assimilate and and some people do 
But psychically and spiritually, I never felt that that was an option for us. And so we had different ways that we pushed against that assimilation, even though the cost is high. There is a cost. It's not as difficult, of course, as what some people go through who are dark skinned and are assumed uh, to be even dangerous in this country. So it's not the same kind of experience of systemic racism that some have, but it is a reality to be pushed back against, right? And so one of the ways that we did that was sobre mesa, um, the, the custom that we have in our countries of, of, of spending time after after lunch, especially on, on a Sunday in, in, our, in our house. My daughters always said they knew there would be no homework or nothing happening between about 10 a.m., which was in, you know, our, our church started until 4.30 p.m., which is when Sobre Mesa ended because you go to church and then come home, then we jam out to some good gospel music, cook, and then we would converse for hours at the table. And if there were friends that wanted to come, that was fine. But we weren't going to let our kids go do play dates or whatever. We needed to sit down and talk through these things. So these conversations have been spaces of theological learning and of all kinds of learning, not just for the younger generation, but for us, my husband and I as well. Right. And so we have these conversations where again and again, we look at these matters of Nepantra from different angles as we understand more. I love the whole sense of Nepantra. And actually, it's part of if we if we think about what it meant for your family to be part of New Mexico. Uh, part of that land that was taken, the people who had the border cross over them. Um, so it's it's very uh, appropriate that you would go back to that space. How, where have your daughters resisted? And where have they um, begun to do theology themselves? Yeah, it's very interesting to me. There's several, there's several spaces, I think, where resistance happens. One is the sobre mesa I was talking about. Closely related to that is language. Specifically, we speak Spanish at home and we, we, we have customs that are related to Argentina at home. Tomar mate, you know, to drink mate, our typical drink, uh, a lot of coffee as well. <laughs> um, and to, to speak Spanish, we insisted on that and we insisted on them knowing how to write it well. So that is one kind of secret weapon, just the language. Uh, and not everybody has the opportunity to be schooled in Spanish, but in Evanston, it was possible to do um, dual language immersion learning. So they were able to have good schooling in Spanish all the way through high school. Uh, and that was a great gift. Then another way is, you know, literally your body. So dancing. Uh, knowing how to dance, knowing how to move, uh, something that was knocked out of me by my upbringing. It was considered a bit too dangerous. It wasn't bad in itself, but it might lead to something bad. So dance was not an option for me growing up, but for them it was. So they are all trained as dancers, but they do a lot of uh, Latin dance, tango, bachata, salsa, 
reggaeton, you name it. Um, one of them is rapera, isn't she? One of them one is of rapera. Them, one of them is Audax the Damsel. She's a rapper. Yeah, she's a very good one. And so that, and she does this uh, bilingual type of rapping. So she does the code switching in the rapping. So that's another way, a discursive way, having to do with language, having to do with rhythm, having to do with the body, um, even the way you walk right? Even the way you walk through a space signifies something about who you are. The way you do your hair, the way you the way do you your dress. makeup. What? The way you dress. The way you dress. Uh, my daughter, who's the rapper, has one song called Beads. She talks about the, the necklaces that she receives from her tias and the, and the different kinds of, of jewelry and, and wearing that and what that means for her um, heritage and maintaining that heritage. Knowing, um, knowing history, knowing uh, our intellectual history and, and the history of, 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 our, of Nuestra America, um, these are all ways of uh, pushing back. And then, of course, discussing the faith from these perspectives. I always thought I, I want to raise these girls um, with the grays. Not just with the black and white ideas. Uh, this is absolutely bad. This is absolutely good kind of thing. Um, but, but with a hermeneutic both of suspicion and of retrieval. And that includes the biblical stories. I did not stuff their heads with a bunch of biblical stories that are sanitized and presented for, for kids. But rather, we focused on a kind of theological hermeneutic as I say, both of suspicion, so no critique of the Christian faith is out of bounds. Let's 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 go all in. Let's learn from the the masters of suspicion, the mistresses of suspicion. But at the same time, let's learn how to retrieve what is good. Examinadlo todo, retenedlo bueno, as it says in the old Spanish translation. Examine everything and retain what is good. So that yeah. that that is exactly what we've tried to do. You know, it's fascinating to me, Dr. Bedford, that you got your daughters to care. You know, there, there are some parents who are utterly committed to their, their children learning Spanish, learning these kind of theological frameworks. But just because of the mechanisms of the U.S., the, the assimilation powers at school, you know, the kids eventually say, no, I don't want to practice speaking Spanish. Well, I had the experience, remember, that I, that, that the, the backwards experience. So my parents insisted that I learn how to speak English and that I learn how to Fair. read and write it. So I, I, they insisted and my older siblings resisted that. And my parents insisted, you must learn English. So I had that growing up. That's fair. And my husband was also very insistent. And I remember one time, you know, th this means also being able to kind of channel una mamá latina, including, I remember one time I was in the car and one of my daughters said, um, was speaking English, answering in English. They were quite young. And I, and I said, hablame en castellano, we call Spanish castellano. Porque si no, la abuela no va a entender. The, your grandmother is not going to be able to talk to you. And she was like, la abuela no está. Like, the grandmother is not here. What do I care? You know, but we insisted we must talk to the abuela. And we talked to the abuela on the phone. Yeah. Regularly. And so the family back home was present. 
And that was also important. Um, so I don't know that I really achieved anything. Uh, I mean, their merit is theirs. Yeah. And, and the Holy Spirit it has been good to us in giving us also a church community where um, they could be themselves, which is for me a criterion of whether or not the Holy Spirit is really at work in a community is, uh, can a person really be holy who they are hmm. and not have to be only a piece of themselves? You tell this story. This is not written down anywhere. I've just heard you tell it. You've told this story about one of your daughters uh, saying, asking, how could she be a good mother if she's not a good theologian? You've already shared here how theological language like Nepantlera, right? How that language was useful to you as you raised daughters. And so much so that your daughters even started to think that the only way to be a good mother was to be a good theologian. A, can you retell that story? And B, how has that evolved as your daughters come into their own? Yeah, so one the that story is interesting to me because my daughter who asked it um, said, you know, ¿Cómo, ¿Cómo voy a poder ser mamá si no soy teóloga? How am I going to be able to be a good mother if I'm not a theologian? She was quite small. And, and the question, you know, the subtext was, and what if I don't want to be a theologian? <laughs> But but what where did that question come from? It came from the fact number one, her mother was a theologian, right? But also that the theology that that I do doesn't divorce out parts of your life. The theology, as I understand it, is making sense of the way of Jesus in every aspect of life. So that means when I'm opening up the refrigerator and getting out some vegetables to make a salad, in what way does theology illuminate? that task. There is no part of light that is alien to theology or outside of theology because theology is nothing other than figuring out the implications of following Jesus in our time and our place. And that is also the domestic realm. It's every realm of life. Lo cotidiano, as we say. La cotidianeidad. So, um, I think she was saying, you know, how how am I going to have this hermeneutic of, of, of suspicion and retrieval that, that we've talked about in which um, I bring together all the different parts of my life in an integrative way, which is what theology has allowed me to do. And that daughter is now studying history. And so in, in some ways that is also helping her do this kind of this kind of path, right? And one of them studying philosophy and the other one is, is studying to be a social worker. So you see all of these different variations of, um, of, of this theme of bringing together in your life all the different aspects. And so life in faith should be integrative, it should be joyful, it should be open to transformation, this metanoia we were talking about, um, humble as well, because we never know everything. So humility is the name of the game for us as theologians if we want to learn anything. Hum, hum, humility was something that I was going to bring up before when you um, spoke about the place of the theologian and you spoke about that as being uh, coming in from the rear guard, the rear guard intellectual. That is definitely uh, a space of humility. Um, there's a richness that continues to be a part of uh, the journey that you describe of who you are as a mother, as a theologian, etc. And there's something to the question that your daughter asks. Um, how can I be a mother without being a theologian? There are a lot of mothers uh, 
who aren't necessarily theologians, um, who live in very difficult spaces and don't always have the tools for speaking back to those spaces and whose uh, pastors aren't very able theologians either. And the space that we have for the spirit to enter and to bring us some kind of sabiduría about what to do con esta muchacha, right, is the space of prayer. Uh, we always default into prayer porque es la única herramienta que nos queda, right? It's the, it's the, it's the, the only uh, power tool that we seem to have. So there is something to uh, your daughter's question, right? Um, being able to teach your children the language um, is a very important thing. Being able to have a school system that hasn't politicized this in such a way is also uh, a tool that we can't do this alone. It really does take a village. It really does take many different resources coming in different directions for us to be the mothers that we need to be. Speak about la cotidianidad de esa injusticia. Um, what does it mean when you're growing up with parents who maybe went up to sixth grade and can't really teach you uh, how to write the language, etc., or who have two jobs and can't be around to do all of this and work on Sundays because, you know, that's when they have to, uh, that's, that, ese fue el turno que les tocó, right? And so when all of that takes place, how should a community think about these pieces? What can be a strategy? In this sense, um, I'm the practical theologian, right? So I'm, I'm always thinking of the pastors that I work with every day, uh, whose questions come, who say, who tell me those stories. How do, how do we make communities um, blend, collaborate? How do we, how do we, how do we bring uh, resources from one space into another space so that we can have the same richness so that the mother who's not the theologian can have someone who's perhaps a little bit ahead of her in thinking about some of these pieces, etc. How do you see that happen? You're, you're, you're very practical as a theologian. And that too is part of nuestra cotidianidad and, and uh, what we wrestle with, right? We can't, we can't save everybody, we can't do everything. But how do we respond to those pieces? What would be your suggestion? Yeah, well, this is so complex. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's so difficult and it's so unjust. And you're just pointing out, you know, pieces of privilege that, that are clear in my own story, right? The possibility of not working on a Sunday and having that sobremesa. The possibility of having learned how to read and write and to be able to transmit that. The possibility of living in a community where there are some good schools and and you, those and of having your daughters take dance lessons etc absolutely uh that is uh that is all a mark that of, of something that many people don't have access to so how to um give a multiplying effect to those things to which they have access 
while at the same time fighting so that they might have access, right? It's a twofold uh, step that we're doing there. Um, and one of the things that I don't ever want to say is that people who are in this situation um, don't have elements to do theology. They too are doing theology. And one of the things that I'm working on right now is a project that I call Corazonar la Teología, Corazonar la Teología, to, to um, do theology as the heart-seeking understanding. In Aviajala, in Nuestra America, in Latin America, we have a tradition of um, a way of thinking that is sentipensar, thinking, feeling, or thinking from the heart not thinking only in abstract terms as if the brain were separated from the body, but thinking uh, from, from your gut and from your heart. I call and, that uh, thinking from las corazonadas because exactly. it's yeah. there. We just have to become in contact with it. Exactly, exactly. And so part of what a rear guard theologian does is precisely, you know, give some language and categories to develop that incipient and already functioning theology that is there. Um, and so that is some of what I see my role as doing. I do um, workshops, for example, with folks, women who are in precisely that situation of much frustration with the church community, not so much with the gospel itself, but with the, they tell me I, I don't have a place where I can be in church that is not um, detrimental to my flourishing as a human being. This is a real problem. Yes. Yeah, I want I want to ask about that because as I hear you share your story, Dr. Bedford, and the story of your daughters, I've got to imagine, and maybe this is the wrong assumption, but it sounds from what you're sharing here that it's accurate. There's got to be some dissonance for your daughters who grew up con una madre teóloga feminista, right? It's got to be so dissonant for them to hear stories from other Latinas who go, the church has been an oppressive space for me, right? So as, as you share this here, I've, I've wondered, right, how have you helped other Latinas and maybe even your daughters process that dissonance? Because what you have done in raising your daughters is, at least here in the U.S., you talked about how Southern Baptist has meant something very different here than Argentine Baptist, right? So how have you uh, navigated the dissonance between the two imaginations or the two ways of doing church? Yeah, I mean, one way is I'm in an Anabaptist community and a Mennonite community. Uh, when we came here, that was one uh, important thing for me was I'm not gonna go to a church where they have a United States flag in the sanctuary. I'm just not gonna do it. And we're gonna go to a place where children are welcome and uh, where my daughters will not be traumatized by the church or none of us will be, in fact, as a family, right? So, um, so, so that was, that's one piece. We, we, we have, they have grown up in a church that's not perfect by any means, but it has not been a place that's traumatized them. It's been a place that has loved them as they are. And I've encouraged them to find, as they go out into the world, other such communities, because there are other such communities, not that there's only one. But I never raised them to think that religion was anything but, a, but an ambiguous phenomenon. Religion can hurt people and it can help people. That's all religions and the Christian faith in particular is ambiguous. It, it can be a force for the good or it can be a force for the bad. And so we can't deny that. 
And we have to see what are the elements within our churches that lead to detrimental outcomes. So very simply, por sus frutos los conoceréis, by their fruit you shall know them. And so if the fruit of a particular religious practice or of a particular faith or a particular community is rotten fruit, something is wrong with that theology. Something is wrong with that practice. Is If the gospel is good news, which I believe it is, then there must be a dissonance between that practice and that rotten fruit and the gospel. What is it? And one of the one of the big ones here in the United States is a kind of docetic theology, meaning a theology not of incarnation. So that Jesus is not the brown man from Nazareth, that he was the daughter, the son of Mary, who was a, 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 a woman who here in the United States would be coded as non-white, probably. Um, but rather, there's this kind of ghostly white Jesus that uh, celebrates um, white supremacy and white nationalism. And so that is a huge theological problem that, that filters through many of our communities. And with the radicalization of even white evangelicals toward these ideas, and the exodus of people who do not have these ideas from those churches, they become even more hardened and even more heterodox, heretical, if not directly just denying, not having anything to do with the Christian faith and making it very difficult for anybody else to say, um, I want to follow Jesus because it, what's assumed to be what that means is a negative thing. And I would think the same if I hadn't had the experiences that I've had. So um, I'm losing track of what it is that I was supposed to be talking about. No, no, you're good. I, I actually, I'm going to get us back on track here, but I'm skipping ahead to a future question, Elizabeth, and, and we'll backtrack here to the, the conversation about parenting, vocation, those pieces, corazonal that we've been talking about. But I asked that question because that dissonance, I think, is important, even among Latinos here in the States. Even among Latinos here in the States, they've been shaped by a church tradition that has some ties to a white denomination or a certain kind of theological tradition where they end up feeling that trauma as well, as you've described. I'm going to skip ahead to something that, that you share. Uh, you, you have this quote that I'm reading here. It says, in Germany, where you studied your PhD, you said, I began to realize that the master's tools can be helpful if they're subverted and transformed, but they are insufficient. Other tools and different approaches are needed if we're to build sustainably and fruitfully. Um, maybe this is a way to get us back onto the thread here, right? When you're talking about other tools, you've mentioned some, corazonal and other things. Uh, I, I want to ask you maybe to give a charge because many young theologians who have that trauma that you talked about, many young theologians who have that trauma are tempted to say, no, oh, burn the master's house, the tools, the farm, the whole city down, right? Like burn everything attached to that. Um, how can those tools, have you, as you said, be transformed and then be coupled with some of these other practices that you've talked about so as to yield the kind of fruit that you've been describing? Yeah, there, there would be an impoverishment, a very strong impoverishment of movements of transformation if, if it were thought that we have to invent everything, every time, every generation, right? Start from scratch. So there are tools, for example, critical theory, that comes from the European critical tradition that are helpful. 
uh, they are not the only tools and those tools can be transformed kind of swords into plowshares right so we can modify those tools we can use them but they're not the only tools in the toolbox we have other tools that come from our experiences so back to elizabeth's question about the, the women in these churches insights that come from their experiences knowledge that they have uh one of the students here that's doing the d-men here at garrett that i helped um supervise um did a developed a, an idea about knitting in her community and women coming together to knit and also to pray and to um, converse and and she argued that this was is a way of doing theology, which I agree, right? And it's, a, it's an alternative way. And at first, some of the women maybe didn't think of what they were doing as doing theology, but through this process of conversation and knitting together, here you have this production of something material and at the same time, a spiritual practice and at the same time, producing a kind of knowledge that is urgently needed. And that knowledge that's urgently needed is not the usual knowledge that we define or that we recognize or work with in uh, our, our in theological education. Um, a lot of that knowledge is tacit knowledge, which is knowledge that you can't really put into words. It's knowledge that if I asked you, Nancy, can you tell me about X? You sit there like, I don't know. But tacit knowledge is the kind of knowledge that does come from experience, that it walks inside of us. And it does, and, and I can't you know, uh, tell you what it is, but it's, uh, it's intuitive. And it comes out when we are in community, when we're doing something that is natural to that community, the knitting, right? And so we're knitting and we're talking about la vida y las cosas de la vida. Hey, el problema de esta y la otra, y estamos chismeando, right? Because that's, you know, that's that's part of knitting. And so we're doing all of this, and, and you know, es chisme que entretiene y que no es malicioso necesariamente, right? So here we are, you know, going through that. We're talking about la novela that we saw and comparing that to, you know, experiences and so forth. And all of a sudden, that kind of belief about life, uh, examples, we give it in examples, we give it in stories. Bueno, por ejemplo, you know, la vecina de allá, yo me acuerdo that my mother had a friend that did blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, you have this tacit knowledge. It just opens up spaces that we can't, they're not part of anything that we write. You and I write. They're not things that we write about. They're just, unless we tell those stories, they're caught in those stories. They're captured there. And for me, for theology to be able to pick that up, yeah, how is it that we capture las mismas voces y las historias and, and this tacit knowledge that is there for these women? Uh, the way that they then look at the scriptures. And the things that they dare to say, that they wouldn't dare to say in church because it would be sacrilegious to say this in church, right? For someone to just say, um, yo no sé para qué yo oro si Dios a mí no me oye. 
right? The, the frustration of, you know, a prayer that's been there for years and God just doesn't seem to hear it. And out of that, out of that frustration, those are one of those little slats that you would think that you were talking about earlier in our conversation. There's a light that can shine through there, right? You know, that's so true. And and I do think there are ways to put that into our theologies and in, in these storytelling, either vignettes or the theopoetic dimension or many other ways to filter it in, not as anecdotes, but as part of the substance of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. That's where that cotidianeidad really is substantive and material and very important for theological education or for spiritual education. Um, I call this implicit theological education. It's part uh, of the metanoia that you were talking about. It's part right? of the metanoia. Where we and, find the spirit moving continuously. And to have the elders, you know, the abuelas, the elders, the the harmonies in the in the Korean church, the elders in the black church, uh, transmitting these knowledge, these these this, this theological knowledge, I would call it implicitly and explicitly through stories, through song, through conversation, um, embroidery, almost, almost more important, and through prayer, mm -hmm. more important than sometimes what is happening in Sunday school. Um, I yes. think it's, 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 it's deeper. It's this deeper formational piece, and it has to do with the, the dignity of each person. So I call this, uh, in my work, uh, feminismo teológico, theological feminism, versus feminist theology. Feminismo teológico, I feel like, is something that I've learned from the women in church all my life. Whether or not they call it, they might think that the F word is a bad word and they would never use it of themselves. But the truth is that's what they were teaching me. They were teaching me how to be a, a, an embodied person in the world um, for whom faith is helpful. And not yeah. a hindrance, right? And and in my book, La Porfía de la Resurrección, it doesn't exist in English, but I had done uh, a series of little stories on a blog, and the editors were like, "Let's put those at the very front of the book because that's what that's that's the best stuff, right?" And, and and so that's what they wanted. They wanted those stories at the front of the book, and not so much the stuff I thought was more, you know, valuable. <laughs> So yeah, I do. I do feel that it's very important to to bring to weave these things in, which is why in the classroom I also tell stories, not as a break from what we're doing, but as the substance of what we're doing. One last thing I want to bring up about that is that one story invites another. One uh, wisdom invites another. Um, it's the space that I find that if you tell those stories in the light of trying to answer questions about taboo subjects that no one wants to talk about, that pastors don't you know, want to engage, that if you tell a story like that, it invites out of them new questions, their own stories that they had not said to anyone, stories that they don't tell in order to protect others. But if you create that safe space, they begin to then invite, one story invites another. And before you know it, people are doing theology about subjects 
that have been considered closed subjects. You know, that is so true. And I would add another way that women do theology is through symbol, um, through mm -hmm. the meaning Very of symbol. One example is a powerful story that I read about uh, in Ciudad Chihuahua in the face of the murders of young women, the femi feminicides. Um, the mothers set up a big cross with a mirror right in front of the, the government building so that when the people who worked in the government building went out of the front door, they could see themselves reflected in a big cross, a big cross that had the names of many of the girls who had disappeared. And these people working in the municipal government really don't seem to care what's happening. So there's a great impunity, a great violence against women with impunity. But it was impossible for those people to go out the door without seeing themselves reflected in the cross to the point that they they destroyed it. And then the women put it back up again. And then those folks would go out the back door. But what a powerful theology of the cross that shows Absolutely. the reality of this world it is for those who are not caring about these deaths of the women to see themselves reflected in that cross and not want to see themselves reflected. So that to me is a one of the ways that women use symbols powerfully to do a kind of theology yeah. and to allow the spirit to move yes yes yeah they put the symbol up and did nothing else right they let the symbol speak so yeah they let yes. the spirit yes use i it. mean they're also marching and and, and and insisting and and asking for justice but um there is so much that, that that people do who don't seem to have maybe this more academic type of training but that is equally valuable so when mm -hmm. I talk about being a rear guard theologian, it's also bringing these stories to the table and having them heard and women understanding, for example, that these stories that Elizabeth was talking about that they're telling are valuable as theological. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as we continue to tell stories, I wanna wrap up with one last one here from from Dr. Bedford. We're, we're chismeando. I, I never thought of it this way, but the whole podcast, every all three seasons of this podcast have been us getting together to chismeal together. There's one last uh, there's one last chisme I want to tell, if I may. Uh, Dr. Dr. Bedford, you write this. You say, as a seminary student in the United States in the 1980s, I was often asked the question, what are you doing here? My answer was invariably, I'm studying theology. What are you doing here? I found the question very strange, one of the many perplexing situations I encountered daily. In Argentina, I had been used, I had been used to the question, why in the world would you want to study theology expressed in earthier language? I took the question to mean roughly, why waste your time on religion when you could be doing something better with your life? That question made sense to me, given the ambiguities of the Christian faith and its histories its history of complicities with injustice. The question did not devalue me as a person or presuppose that I was not qualified to carry out such a course of study. It simply expressed surprise and perhaps disapproval at my vocational choices. I thought I could answer it by trying to follow Jesus faithfully and doing theology in innovative ways that my conversation partners had perhaps not yet encountered. 
But the question I was regularly asked at my seminary in the United, in the United States was quite different. It was posed by my peers as a rhetorical question, a way of communicating to me that I somehow did not belong in seminary. My questions, my theological intuitions, my body were out of place. I did not have the elements to understand why the white males who asked me this question thought they had the right to do so, nor did my theological education at the time yet provide many instruments with which to engage the dynamic critically. As I read that, I'm wondering, there are plenty of Latinas who are facing that question today. How would you have them answer? As a last kind of moment of doing theology with a story, what do you say to Latinas who are facing that question? How should, how should they answer? How would you have them answer? Well, um, be faithful to your call and don't presuppose that those who are asking the question um, are the ones to determine what the marco teorico is, what the theoretical framework is for even doing this task. Um, there are so many now women who have gone before, so it's helpful to read some of their stories and some of their work, right? But it's also um, important to remember that even Jesus got told, well, can something good come out of Nazareth, right? And then you're a Galilean, what are you doing? Or what are you doing here? And then the disciples got the same question. These people have this accent, aren't they Galileans? Or how did they learn these things? Um, it didn't stop that from being good stuff that they were doing, right? So it is absolutely legitimate to ask um, questions from the place from where you are. And those Latinas who are studying theology are on that hyphen, in that Nepantla, in the sense that they have access to this um, possibility and privilege of studying, even while they're being told, maybe you shouldn't be here, right? So it's, again, that experience of the in-between that is very generative and valuable in the end, because they are able to access interesting parts of the tradition, but from a fresh perspective, from the perspective of their own questions. And so then you can reread, um, I would say everything belongs to you. All of scripture, all of the tradition, all of the theologians that ever existed, read them for yourselves and read them from your perspective. And you may find that there's some liberating dimensions in what you read. Amen. Edmana, thank you so much for opening up your story, for sharing the history of the name Bedford. To, to travel from Britain to Argentina and back to the U.S. has been a privilege. To imagine the ways in which you've conceived of motherhood as a theologian, but also to conceive of theology as a mother, to think about the interactions between those two things has been a gift. Uh, so let me tell the audience to continue with us. If you have questions about the conversation that we've had today, you can always send in your questions by calling in 312-725-2995-312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll, we'll answer the question on the last episode of the season. Doctoras, I'll ask you both a final word before we leave for today. Well, um, thank you so much for the invitation. Es un gusto, realmente un honor uh, to be charlando and chusmeando <laughs> and chismeando <laughs> in a very theological and generative way. And God bless you as you continue with this ministry. Remember Dr. Bedford's words, 
everything that's rich from our tradition belongs to you. Amen. Taking a new look. Y con eso, familia, se acabó. Peace on my night. Peace, peace on